Is this the end of the road for the internal combustion engine? Climate One conversations feature all aspects of the climate emergency, the individual and the systemic, the exciting and the scary. I'm Greg Dalton. Transportation is America's biggest source of carbon pollution, and essentially anywhere you live, a car that runs on electricity is cleaner than one that runs on gasoline or diesel. In today's conversation, we plug into the accelerating transition to EVs and what it means for car owners, car makers, our climate, and our communities. We also explore what policies the Biden administration can put forward to support the switch. Climate One's Andrew Stelzer gets us going. After taxpayers bailed out General Motors and Chrysler during the Great Recession, President Obama had a lot of leverage over the U.S. auto industry. The result was increasing fuel efficiency standards for the first time in decades. This restructuring, as painful as it will be in the short term, will mark not an end, but a new beginning for a great American industry. An auto industry that is once more outcompeting the world. A 21st century auto industry that is creating new jobs, unleashing new prosperity, and manufacturing the fuel-efficient cars and trucks that will carry us towards an energy-independent future. Obama eventually set a goal of 54 miles per gallon by 2025, and car companies made steady progress towards that number. Then came President Trump, who not only scaled back the goals, but took aim at California's legal right to set stricter requirements that are often adopted by other states and effectively become the national standard. Since he took office, California has sued the Trump administration more than 100 times over climate, immigration, and other issues. California's Attorney General Javier Becerra vowed that some 20 states are prepared to fight back in court. Becerra said the Trump administration plan would dramatically increase carbon emissions and gas prices. Who pays for this reckless action by the Trump administration? We do, at the pump and with our health. The auto industry was torn. GM and Toyota were among 10 companies supporting Trump's call for lower uniform federal fuel standards. Ford, Honda, Volkswagen, and BMW signed a deal with California to voluntarily stick with the state's higher targets. The legal tug of war continued. The Department of Justice is now launching a new investigation into four automakers. Phil Abo with the details. Phil. Sarah, this is a fuel fight between the Trump administration, the state of California, and caught in the middle are automakers, four of whom have already agreed to new standards with the state of California. But while Washington and Sacramento were busy wrestling over numbers, countries like France, India, and the UK have been taking steps to phase out gasoline-powered vehicles altogether. California Governor Gavin Newsom signed an executive order to do the same by 2035, and Mercedes parent company Daimler says it will no longer develop new internal combustion engines. Mercedes said its current focus is on battery electric mobility, but there is also room and need to work on other solutions, for example, the fuel cell or e-fuels. EVs are coming. The question is whether they will arrive fast enough to meet our climate goals. For Climate One, I'm Andrew Stelzer. Joining me now are three industry experts. Craig Scott is group manager at Toyota North America. Katie Sloan is electrification and customer service governance executive at Southern California Edison and a board member at CalStart, a clean transportation group. 
and Emily Castor-Warren is Senior Policy Advisor for Nelson Nygaard Consulting Associates, who specialize in holistic transportation solutions. This program is underwritten by ClimateWorks Foundation. A full disclosure, Ford Motor Company is also an underwriter of Climate One. As we heard earlier, California will require all new cars sold in the state to be zero emissions by the year 2035. But does Emily Castor-Warren think that's possible? I think so. We can do it. The technology is there, and we're starting to see a really rapidly increasing pace of consumer adoption. So at this point, the writing is on the wall for the end of the combustion engine vehicle, and it's a matter of time. We have the fundamentals of what we need, and it's a matter of going from the early adopters to scale. Right. And so what is needed, though? Is that going to happen by the industry's own pace or what kind of other pressures are going to make that change happen fast enough to uh, meet the climate goals? We have seen a lot of improvement in the offerings coming out from industry in the last few years. But I think the overriding policy architecture is also incredibly important. And when we see action from governments like California or from what kind of leadership we may be able to see in the new administration at the federal level, it's essential to direct the incentives of the companies toward prioritizing the marketing of the products that do have the potential to help meet these goals. Because left to their own devices, I think consumers don't necessarily have the familiarity with or the education about these new cars to to choose them um, if the companies aren't properly incentivized to, to really put those at the forefront. Right. So initially, electric cars were either early adopters, the Tesla owners, and now we have pickup trucks and all sorts of cars in different market segments matching where where the really where the SUVs, where the market is. Is that what you're saying, Emily? That's right. And I certainly can't blame any consumers for not having chosen some of the earliest waves of electric cars. Um, I owned one myself starting in 2014 that only had about 90 miles of range. And I have to tell you, it was hard. I was very motivated to own that car and make it work. But someone who didn't already have that motivation, I think would have struggled to really have that car meet their needs because it was hard to go on road trips. You know, it didn't have all of the the functionality that someone might have expected. And also a lot of those early models were small. They were compact vehicles and didn't have the full range of uh, form factors that you might be able to find in the rest of the car market. So now it's super encouraging to see manufacturers bringing to market electric cars that are in all those segments, SUVs, crossovers, even pickup trucks starting to come now online with battery electric technology. And that's exciting because then we can really imagine a full range of consumers and all of their different needs, finding options that work for them. Katie Sloan. Yeah, I just wanted to build on that and say it's really important for uh, to get to scale for customers, not just that are affluent, um, but some of our uh, less advantaged customers to be able to adopt electric vehicles. And I think what's really important to think about there is that a lot of times when people are buying their new car, um, it's because their current car has broken down. So that's a really difficult time to be able to educate people on electric vehicles. And so that's why we need to be doing that continuously um, up front so that when they um, unfortunately have a car breaking down, there's op- options for them and they're comfortable at that point. Craig Scott, Toyota sided with the Trump administration challenging California's right to set stronger greenhouse gas emissions and fuel economy standards. What's Toyota's stance now on California's new plan to allow only emission-free cars in just nine years? Good question. So um, I'll, I'll start by saying the, you know, the best 
best part of my job is I get to, and for 20 years, I've worked on um, on zero emission technologies for Toyota. The, the second best part of my job is I'm not a policy guy. So uh, I, don't, I don't have to uh, make those strategy decisions. I will say this, that um, from my point of view, um, as somebody who's been doing this for a long time, our position in Toyota is very much aligned with uh, what the goals of California are. We have uh, very similar sustainability goals. We have very similar zero emission goals. Uh, we you know we set our zero emission targets not only for uh, tailpipe emissions but also manufacturing of those vehicles. Um, six years ago to 2050 and uh, and 2030 most recently, and pulling ahead uh, some of those to 2025. So, I think we're we're quite well aligned. Katie Sloan, are electric utilities ready for a surge of cars with plugs? Can the grid handle it? Short answer there is yes. Uh, what's really good about the goals like we were just talking about in California is that they're in 2035. So that gives us time right now to build out the grid to have the electricity and the infrastructure that we need. Um, at Southern California Edison, we have been working on electric vehicles since the 1980s. Um, and just in the last four years, we've gone from $22 million for electric vehicle infrastructure programs for our customers to over $800 million we'll be deploying over the next five years. Um, so it's a really exciting time. We've been ahead of it, uh, but we know we have a ways to go. Um, and that's why we can all align with these policy targets to get where we need to be. One of the things that came out of Dieselgate, Katie Sloan, was uh, VW got caught cheating on its emissions, big global scandal, billions and billions of dollars uh, in penalties uh, for for VW. But one of the things that came out of that is California made them put in a charging net uh, infrastructure across the country. How big a deal is that? Is that, is that going to uh, perhaps the Dieselgate is actually going to turn into a really good thing for electrification? Well, we've been working a lot with um, Electrify America, the organization that was set up to put in that infrastructure across the country. Um, and it's been a really great experience to work with them to make sure that we have streamlined processes so that they can put those um, installations in quickly um, and to share some of those lessons learned with other utilities across the country. I think the other exciting thing that came from um, that settlement was uh, in funding for school buses. So we're seeing a lot of electric school buses coming online in places um, that aren't California, including uh, Virginia. They have quite a bit of uh, school buses that they're electrifying there. So I think it, it is a story of uh, making some positive uh, out of a difficult situation. Craig Scott, one secret of the car industry is that dealers make more money servicing cars than selling them. EVs don't need tune-ups, spark plugs, oil changes. There's a lot fewer moving parts in an electric car. Are auto dealers and uh, fix-it shops resisting the shift to electric cars because that threatens their revenue? That's a good question. You know, uh, I, I don't think so because there's still lots of things that can be done for service. And also dealers are, are moving into other other areas. So for example, there's dealers talking about installing charging stations, there's dealers talking about a charging hydrogen station. So I think it's a shift uh, of a business model, but not necessarily, you know, an effort to uh, just stop the old. I, I like everything, Greg, everything is a transition time, right? So we, things aren't binary. We don't wake up one morning and the whole world is, uh, is Zev, right? We, we transition over time. Zero emission vehicle. Um, Emily Castor-Warren, how do you see that in either the evolution of, of the industry and the service models, business models of, um, you know, what they're into the industry, they're called stores pushing metal? 
Sure. Well, I think we're in the middle of a transition, not only to electrification, but also on a slightly longer time horizon to automation. And there are a lot of interesting implications of that shift for urban form and the way we use public space in cities um, and private space, frankly. So whereas we may have had a lot of space used for parking lots or for servicing personally owned vehicles in the past, I think there is an understanding that as we shift toward automated vehicles, that many of them will be operated through fleets and that they will require service. They'll require maintenance. They'll require charging. And there will need to be places that are located proximate to where trips are happening, near jobs, near services, where that kind of logistics network can be housed. So I actually could imagine a future for dealers where they can play a part in that network. It's simply a matter of being proactive because new businesses will arise to meet those logistics needs. And it's incumbent on the industry to find their place in that quickly before they get kind of left by the wayside. Katie Sloan, your thoughts on how the cities and the business models are going to look different in, in this uh, push to electrify everything to address climate change? There's a lot of devil in the detail here where we can have these very ambitious policy goals, but then we really need to get into the tactical of how do we make this happen. Um, one of my favorite examples is the city of Los Angeles has already passed building codes where new construction, uh, where they have indoor parking, the floors actually have to be flat because they know that they're, they won't need parking spaces as much in the future, and then they'll be able to transform that space into living space or retail space. So having those kind of streamlined permitting process, future proofing um, our building is really where we need to go with cities. And Katie Sloan, it's also that some of the energy companies are getting in each other's lanes. You know, uh, electric utilities are getting into the mobility business, which has been the domain of oil companies and oil companies. Some of them, Shell in particular, might be get, getting into uh, electricity. So how are, how are the giant energy industries kind of tangling with each other these days and kind of eyeing each other's lunch? Yeah, it'll be really interesting to see how the next uh, five to 10 years play out on that front. Um, one of the terms that I've really liked about uh, what's going on right now is a lot of coopetition. Uh, so we have to cooperate to help move things forward. Uh, but at the end of the day, people also need to do what's good for their business. So I think in the near term, as uh, we're scaling up, you'll see more of that uh, cooperation. And then as people really find their groove, um, the competition may come out more. Emily Kefter-Warren, how do you see the auto industry risks and opportunities for an accelerated shift to zero emission vehicles? Is it in the financial interest of car makers to go all in on getting off of oil when they've got so much invested that that's the engineering they know? They've got these huge plants and factories. Are they really financially incentivized to go move away from that? In the long term, I see no reason why the auto industry can't thrive in selling um, vehicles that have this new type of powertrain. It's simply the transition that's painful because when you're embedded in a particular way of building cars and you're confident in the trajectory of your business using that existing technology, it's scary and there, there can be transitional costs. But in the long arc of things, there's there's no reason why folks can't successfully sell these electric cars. In fact, consumers, once they have the experience of using electric cars, love them and find them to be better. And I think uh, we'll continue to be attracted to the companies that offer great electric car 
product offerings for many years to come. Um, of course, we did also talk about this shift toward automation and the fact that there there may be some transition in transportation behavior generally where people start to buy rides instead of buying cars. But I think that will happen much more quickly in dense urban areas rather than in some of the, the more suburban or exurban and rural areas of the country where I imagine car ownership will persist for a very long time. So there's nothing like a cliff coming up for for car makers when it comes to selling cars to people. And they can also look to a future of selling to fleets. Craig Scott, in 2004, California Governor Arnold Schwarzenegger announced plans for a hydrogen highway, and he loved to talk about his hydrogen-powered Hummer. That highway went nowhere, and Hummer just announced a battery electric version of the iconic tough guy car. Despite industry consolidation around battery electric cars, Toyota's sticking with hydrogen. One analyst said that we'll know Toyota's serious about hydrogen when it pays for and builds a fueling network for its hydrogen cars, similar to what Tesla has done for battery electric cars. Why doesn't Toyota do for hydrogen what Tesla has done for EVs? So I think I think we've done for hydrogen uh, far more than than any other manufacturer has done for any of their competing uh, technologies. To be frank, um, you know we we spend lots and lots of R and D money on on uh, building vehicles, and those are not just fuel cell vehicles, but also electric vehicles. You know for other markets. Um, good to remember that we are still. Um, uh, still have more cars with batteries in them, either in a hybrid or plug-in form, than any other manufacturer, and, and maybe all manufacturers combined. You know, we don't build gasoline stations, we don't build roads for cars. That's the domain of other people. Um, we do support, um, you know, a hydrogen network in California to the extent possible in other parts of the world. But you know, it's a, it's a big it's a big ask, and I think Emily uh, made made a good point that it's a transition, and um, and everyone's you know should take their proper role in, in that. And would you agree that policy is helpful to move that transition faster than companies would otherwise go themselves? I mean, policy is absolutely fundamental to to making things move right. Not and not just on the uh, on the manufacturer side, but um, but also on the consumer side, right? So customers have to be um, incentivized to purchase vehicles that are inherently more expensive um, to sell and build um, than the incumbent technology, and that's just you know the, the nature of the game, right? So it's uh, uh, building something new is always more expensive than building something you've been building for a hundred years. You're listening to a Climate One conversation about the road to an all-electric future. Coming up, can we get there fast enough? You know, I think what can make it go faster is continued uh, policies that will help push us together. So let's see how much further and faster we can go um, in a, a new administration. This is Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. We're talking about electrifying America's drivers with Katie Sloan of Southern California Edison, Craig Scott of Toyota North America, and Emily Castor-Warren of Nelson Nygaard Consulting Associates. When people think of electric cars, one name usually comes to mind. Tesla dominates the U.S. electric vehicle market at around 80% of sales this year, while the rest of the automakers fight over what's left of the pie. Sure, Tesla's been at it longer than the others, but what's the real secret to Tesla's success? Emily Castor-Warren says it comes down to understanding the thrill of the open road. They really saw that in order to make the electric car market grow, they needed to sell cars that people found aspirational, that they really wanted to have, that were beautiful, high-performing cars. And I think it's taken a very long time for other car owners 
to rise to this, that same challenge and learn that same lesson rather than simply viewing the requirement to manufacture electric cars as something they have to do. Um, I think the mindset that will be successful in this market is selling electric cars that people would love to have. So I think that's a good, that's a really good point. Um, aspirational vehicle sales is really um, key. I, mean, I think all manufacturers really have been doing this for a long time, though. That's why Toyota has Lexus and and uh, Honda has Acura and so on and so forth. This is a very sort of uh, typical sort of way to sell cars, I think. Um, the, the issue really that I think will, will be important for us to move this to a mainstream technology, which is really the key to make any of these things really meaningful, right? I think we could all agree that selling a few hundred thousand cars is, is is pointless in a 17 million car market and if we're talking about the US and that is you know the cost at which these vehicles transact right and so selling a $100,000 car is is really um you know a nice thing for manufacturers to do but we need to hit the heart of the market which you know is really around $27,000 so selling cars into that part, price point is where um you start making actual impacts uh to climate so you know folks buying cars in the inner cities are are buying things that they can afford and that they can plug in you know, that they can they can afford to refuel right and um, that's really that's really important it, we, we can't leave those people behind right and I think Emily touched on something which is you know initially you know environmentally oriented cars and the Prius is an example of this uh, were sold on virtue electric cars haven't been sold on on sexiness and performance and 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 other things it's been kind of the you know eat your vegetables kind of virtue cars and Tesla comes along and it's like all about shine and, and polish so your point on on that auto companies have really marketed these cars on virtue and that's not where most of the market is. Yeah, I'm sorry. I don't think that if I was saying that uh, we're marketing vehicles on on virtue, I don't I don't think that's the case. I mean, our core DNA is quality, dependability, and reliability, not uh, virtuousness, right? So it's it's not a it's not the case. I think that it's a really really a key point to to note that most people are buying cars. I think a case of this earlier, you know, you're replacing a car that that is uh, no longer working, or you need another car in the household, right? These are these are cars that are utility cars for people to get from point A to point B, right? And and the data shows very clearly that most people who are buying electric cars are buying them as a second or third car today. About 33% of the time, you're buying it as your primary vehicle. If you compare that to to, to hydrogen, for example, just to just to say kind of how that is playing out, roughly about 94% of people buying a Toyota Mirai today are buying it as the replacement for their primary vehicle. That means that they view it as a technology that can be used in their daily life. Emily Castor-Warren, ride-hailing companies Uber and Lyft claimed they would cut greenhouse gases by reducing car ownership and promoting shared rides. We now know the data shows that those companies increased tra traffic congestion and total vehicle miles traveled. Drivers travel long distance into urban centers and spend a lot of their time deadheading, driving around empty, waiting for our twitchy fingers to summon them. How do they figure into the electrification of cars as part of America's climate goals? We've seen a lot of great progress in the last few years and even just the last six months from Uber and Lyft with respect to their commitments to electrification. Whereas for the prior several years of their existence, they have been you know, really relying on the fleet of personally owned vehicles that are out there, very few of which are currently electric cars. They've now expressed a commitment to taking a more proactive role in controlling what types of cars are allowed on their platform when it comes to their emissions profile. They've both made commitments that they will actually make sure that all the cars on their platforms by 2030 are electric. And that's huge. That would mean that they'd be miles ahead of the personally owned vehicle fleet that's out there at that same year. Because even if people stop being able to buy 
combustion engine vehicles in California by that year or a, um, a you know quickly following year, there will still be lots of combustion engine vehicles that people own and will be driving for many years after that because the average car is on the road after it's sold for 10 or 15 years. So if we actually see fully zero emissions fleets operating on Lyft and Uber platforms by 2030, that will make them really one of the most sustainable modes of transportation that's out there from an emissions perspective. Obviously, it's it's still great to walk, bike, and take transit, and we hope that that's a big part of the picture. But a zero, zero emissions option like Uber and Lyft can really support a car-free or car-light lifestyle and offer a very important uh accelerator to the broader electric vehicle market by getting large numbers of people to have the opportunity to take rides in electric cars. And also many, many drivers, including perhaps low-income drivers or um, drivers who may come from disadvantaged communities and not otherwise have access to electric vehicles um, to get that experience as well. Craig Scott, where does electrifying public transportation, buses, uh, heavy-duty vehicles, long-haul vehicles, fill into, into this picture? We've been talking a lot about electric cars, but there's a lot of other vehicles that move around, buses, trucks, et cetera. How does that fit into the electrification picture? Uh, yeah, there are there are indeed, and I would echo uh, what, what Emily said. It's really true that uh, people get a experience with a zero emission vehicle, then they it really helps them change their their position on it. And you know, we did some really fundamental research in this space with Berkeley probably ten years ago now um, that that showed it to be uh, to be the case. And the same is true then for for public transportation, right? So people who get an opportunity to ride an electric bus or a fuel cell bus get the experience that they otherwise wouldn't have gotten and understand that you know these these technologies are real and they exist and and they're in the marketplace um, for people to uh, to try and to evaluate. So whether it's a, a Corolla hybrid or a, a fuel cell bus in Orange County um, or a fuel cell class eight truck that we're running in Port of LA, all of these things um, are important, I think, to uh, to deepen the message with consumers. Katie Sloan, environmental justice advocates say that affluent people are pushing costs of their solar roofs and electric cars onto lower income people. How big a problem is that? Yeah, I'm, I'm glad we went into this, and I'd like to bring it back to that conversation around medium and heavy-duty vehicles. One of the things we found in Southern California is that medium and heavy-duty vehicles are causing 80% of the particulate pollution, and that is right around disadvantaged communities. So in Los Angeles, we have the some of the largest ports in the country. 40% of our products come in through Los Angeles, Port of Los Angeles, and Port of Long Beach. And they travel along our freeways into the Inland Empire where the warehouses are. And so really cleaning up the trucks that are going along those freeways is critical. So that's why we partnered with a lot of environmental justice organizations for our programs for medium and heavy-duty infrastructure investment. So much so that when we were at our regulator looking to get those programs approved, we had environmental justice advocates advocating that we get more funding to do that. Um, so that's why we've actually been pushing some of the medium and heavy-duty vehicle electrification faster than some of our light-duty programs, um, because it's really critical that we clean up um, the, the air pollution in, in those communities. So I think that's one piece that's really important. The other piece is that even on the light-duty vehicle side, those vehicles are also traveling through those communities. Emily Kester-Warren, you and I own electric cars. Uh, we don't pay any gasoline tax, which is the primary way for funding roads and highways in this country. So we're free riders. That's a problem if there's more electric cars. How's that going to be solved? 
There are actually a lot of studies that are underway across the country in different states looking at new sources of how to structure the revenues that states get to fund transportation infrastructure. California has looked at a road user charge where instead of charging for, you know, just for kind of gas taxes, they would instead transition over to charging people for miles because every type of vehicle travels miles regardless of its type of powertrain. And I think that's probably a pretty sensible solution. So as we wrap up, I want to come back to speed because uh, we know that the climate goals are serious. The climate budget is uh, is being uh, burned through. So how do we get to speed quickly? How do we get to make this transition? Mobility is moving toward electrification cleaner. It's just not happening fast enough. Katie Sloan, what can make this go faster? You know, I think what can make it go faster is continued policies that will help push us together. We know on the solar side, for example, we didn't just have one policy that was helping to um, increase adoption for solar. We had electricity rates that were helpful. We had industry programs. We had targets. It's really an all of the above. So we're on a really good trajectory in California, but I think that that also needs to be replicated uh, across the U.S. because it's not just a California market, right? That's not what is going to get um, the manufacturers to be excited about producing these vehicles. So let's see how much further and faster we can go um, in a a new administration. Emily Castor-Warren, pick up on that. What could accelerate the transition to cleaner mobility in the United States? Well, certainly, first of all, just backing off from the war against all the policies designed to bring electric cars forward will be very helpful and provide long-term clarity to the industry. So there's not ambiguity about what the standards are going to be and what direction we're headed. I'd also love to see a renewal and expansion of the purchase incentive programs that have been in a holding pattern um, the last few years. And of course, infrastructure continues to be really important. So I think looking at, at additional infrastructure um, and the, the pace at which we can install that across the country, not just in the places that have been the biggest centers for purchasing electric cars uh, to date, is, is going to be really important as well. And to have close partnership with states that are, are doing things that are leading the way, like California, where they're really motivating manufacturers to exercise this transition over to electric cars rather than seeing it as a sideshow to their main business. You're listening to a Climate One conversation about transitioning to zero emission vehicles. That was Emily Castor-Warren, Senior Policy Advisor for Nelson Nygaard Consulting Associates. We also spoke with Craig Scott, Group Manager at Toyota North America, and Katie Sloan with Southern California Edison. Next, we look beyond America's shores at the global EV market. Worldwide, EV sales have dropped around 15% during the COVID recession, but one region is experiencing a power surge. Europeans have purchased 400,000 plug-in cars this year, a significant increase over previous years. To tell us more, we're joined by Hui He, China Regional Director at the International Council on Clean Transportation. Colin McCarricker is Head of Transport Analysis at Bloomberg NEF. He starts us off from London. So you've got a really unique combination of factors all coming into play in Europe at once. Um, The first one is is a regulatory push. So what's happening is that automakers have to hit a certain uh, fuel economy target. So it's framed in terms of grams of CO2 per kilometer driven of all the vehicles that they sell. And if they don't, they have to pay very significant fines in the order of billions of dollars if, if a lot of them miss it. So what that means is that over the last few years, a lot of them have been waiting with their EV models to really launch them in 2020 to get the most regulatory benefit from that. 
So there's that big regulatory part of it. Then there's this sort of model choice part of it that's related, that a lot of consumers can now pick a model in different segments and different price points. There's more options than there were a few years ago. And then in some markets, you're actually starting to get to much more of the real middle market. So in, in parts of Northern Europe, Norway, Sweden, the Netherlands, um, you're starting to get into the steeper part of the curve. Uh, so that, that the, all those factors together mean this is definitely going to be a record year for EV sales in Europe, and 2021 will be will be even higher still. So there's more choices, lower prices, and the, the sounds like the, the market's maturing. Uh, Bloomberg NEF forecasts about 28% of global sales will, in 2030 will be electric, 58% in 2040. But Boris Johnson in the UK recently announced plans to ban all gasoline cars by 2030, five years earlier than previously announced. How big an impact is that going to have? UK, not a big market, but symbolically. Yeah, I mean, it's not a big market in comparison to the US, but it's still one of the top 10 auto markets in the world. Those are big numbers. And those are, that's a really close date. And I would just say when, when we do our forecasts, we don't assume any new big policies like that are going to come in. If they do come in, then the adoption forecast will be higher the next time we come back to it. So I, I suspect it will be higher given all the stimulus money. And when we were talking about what's driving things in Europe, stimulus money is a big part of it too. Markets like Germany and France, a lot of the COVID recovery packages for the auto sector have been tied to trying to push more clean cars onto the road. So, so that's part of it. And, and I do think these, these long-term phase-out targets, um, they're not so long-term anymore. We're not talking about 2040, 2050. Uh, 2030 is nine, just over nine years away. I think there has to be a huge push on on charging infrastructure, uh, on raw material supply, all these sorts of things to enable that. But certainly governments are sending very clear signals right now to automakers that, uh, look, this is the direction we want things to go. We know there are some challenges ahead. We want to work together on solving them. But um, this is where we're going. This is the direction of traffic. And the leader in that, Huihu, the biggest government sending those sorts of signals has been China, a real leader in EV adoption and technology. How has China's EV push been set back by the COVID recession? Mm -hmm. I'd say that the economic downturn happened in the beginning of 2019, and we have already seen that the EV sales were down uh, starting from mid last year, not just because of COVID. So I'd say it's a combination of economic recession starting from the beginning of last year, and then this big um, withdrawal of central subsidy play a, ma a major role. And then you see the COVID was impacting uh, on top of that on the entire economy and uh, people's buying patterns uh, in into 2020. So I'd say it's a combination of many things, not just the COVID. And a lot of people might question, well, electric cars in China, doesn't that mean a coal-powered car? And is that dirtier, perhaps, than a gasoline-powered car? So, you know, is an electric car in China really cleaner than a gasoline car, given all the coal they have? That's a good question. Actually, there is no governmental research or number to confirm that the electric vehicles are really cleaner than uh, combustion engine vehicles. However, there are many research institutes begin to digging into this issue, then there are a lot of research tools established and in international collaborations on this. Uh, according to these independent research results, uh, we see that in the current stage, even like more than 60% of the electricity was powered by coal, um, electric cars still have a marginal benefits, uh, environmental benefits over combustion engines, but just the marginal. 
in some cases, uh, from a life cycle perspective, electric vehicles may emit a little higher conventional air pollutants like fine particles uh, than co combustion engines. However, that will change dramatically in the next few years as China is doing uh, very hard, pushing very hard in cleaning up its coal sector or the upstream emissions. And we already see in this 14th five-year planning, it's uh, the macro central planning for China's entire economy and for all the major sectors like uh, energy, transportation. China is already releasing a signal to deeply clean up its uh, electricity sector. In about five to 10 years, we'll see the grid will become much cleaner and the benefits of electric vehicles will become bigger. Yeah, electric cars come get cleaner over time. Colin, do you want to? Yeah, I just wanted to jump in. That Part of the issue, too, is that when you sell a car, when it rolls off the line for an internal combustion engine vehicle, you are locking in um, its efficiency, right? Its, its efficiency is fixed. Its emissions are fixed. If anything, they deteriorate, or deteriorate over time. The benefit, if you're talking about decarbonization of the EV side, is that you can sell a car and it can get cleaner over time, as you say, the, as the power grid cleans up the emissions clean up. And I live in the UK. Uh, when I moved here, coal was about 48% of the generation mix in 2010. This year, it's going to be about 4%. Mm -hmm. And so those EVs that were bought on, bought in 2010 or 2011 are driving much, much cleaner than they were when they were purchased. And when we're talking about long-term goals of decarbonization, then you really need to do these things concurrently if you're going to have any hope of hitting some of those longer-term targets. You're listening to a conversation about the global impact of electric cars on climate change. This is Climate One. Coming up, why Chinese automakers could get a foothold in the European market. It is hard to convince people to get into a totally new brand of, of vehicle. But what we have seen from the past is that people's economic loyalty is often the actually most important thing. So if the vehicle is good value, people will, will get into it regardless of where it came from. This is Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. We're talking about the global market for zero emission vehicles. My guests are Hui He of the International Council on Clean Transportation and Colin McCarricker of Bloomberg NEF in London. Even with the increase in electric cars worldwide, we still have a long way to go to meet our climate goals. Big picture, how much greenhouse gas reductions do EV sales account for? Can we really hope to make a dent in the carbon budget? Not yet. The reality is there's still only about well, at the end of this year, we figure there'll be about 10 million uh, electric vehicles on the road globally. And those are displacing about 1 million barrels of oil. But actually, that's including two-wheelers. And there's a lot of electric two-wheelers, mostly in China. And most of that displacement is actually from the two-wheeled segment. So if we were saying which is having the biggest impact today in terms of CO2 emissions, it's probably electric two-wheelers, then uh, electric buses, both of those in China, and then third, the global passenger electric vehicle fleet. So there is an impact today, but the vehicle fleet is so big, it takes such a long time for these trends to have an impact because you're impacting new vehicle sales right now. New EV sales are going up, but there's still 1.2 billion vehicles on, or passenger vehicles on the road in the world, and it takes a long time for that fleet to turn over. I'm old enough to remember waves in the United States of uh, first the Japanese imports were a big deal, then then Korean imports. Uh, Huihu, when are we American consumers going to see Chinese branded electric vehicles driving around? How far away from uh, a wave of Chinese imported cars? 
I have seen that car manufacturers in China are working very hard trying to sell vehicles, uh, cars in the United States and in Europe. Perhaps today they are more successful in selling commercial vehicles, buses. We see a lot of electric buses in Europe are from uh, the Chinese brands, but not so much on electric cars. Even though domestically we have this huge brand BYD or Beijing uh, Auto Automotive uh, Incorporation (BAIC). Uh, it's a dream of uh, Chinese automakers or the the, the China government uh, seeing that their technologies is really going abroad. Their technologies are competitive, but today uh, they still meet a lot of barriers. Many of the barriers are not understanding the technical requirements, standards, especially the environmental standards in the more advanced uh, markets like the United States and Europe. Uh, some cars are struggling to meet uh, their local requirement, but the manufacturers are trying their best to improve that. Colin, uh, VW got busted, you know, cheating on the emissions scandal. Uh, you know, executives, uh, there's still legal proceedings, billions of dollars of fines, et cetera. Has VW really changed its stripes? And what about the other luxury European car brands? Are they serious about electrification? I think they're pretty serious about electrification. I mean, uh, I, when I I talk to VW and the amount of money they're pushing in is is just a huge industrial push around this. And and when you talk all the way up the, the management chain, there is a real belief that this is the necessary next step for, for VW to continue to be a global brand um, and to, to kind of roll with this change in the auto sector over this next 10 and 15 year period. So, I mean, $66 billion in investment over the next five years going towards EVs. Um, pretty significant chunks of money um, impacting all of the the VW Group brands, uh, and and each one, some of them have different stronger points in different markets within Europe. So right after the emissions scandal happened, I I remember saying really clearly, like this is they're now the my odds-on favorite to really drive the EV revolution in the 2020s, and I think that's what's going to happen. I think you're going to see a pretty big uh, increase in the numbers from them. Um, coming back to actually the Chinese. Automakers, I think actually Europe might be where there's an interesting market angle for them because there is this quite a bit tighter CO2 standards and some automakers who are not really ready to hit that and who are looking for partners to help bring down their their their, their average CO2 levels. So it is hard to convince people to get into a totally new brand of, of vehicle. But what we have seen from the past is that people's economic loyalty is often uh, the actually most important thing. So if the vehicle is a good value, people will will get into it, regardless of where it came from, uh, if it's safe and good value. So there is an interesting window that you may see some of the Chinese automakers try and enter in Europe because there is this kind of regulatory pressure and some of the automakers selling in Europe are not quite able to meet it. So there might be a window there that they try and get in in the next couple of years. So Europe is ahead on uh, policy reducing greenhouse gases, and that's pushing the electrical move to mobility. What about the oil companies? Clearly, they're they're threatened by this. European oil companies are more progressive than American oil companies. Colin, are European oil companies fighting this push to uh, reduce demand for their primary product? Not really. Um, European oil majors are pretty active on e-mobility. So whether that's um, Equinor or Total or Shell or BP, all of them have big groups very active in e-mobility. And they've snapped up a lot of the companies around charging infrastructure. So uh, quite a few of those are actually part of, so whether it's BP Chargemaster was one of the biggest ones in the UK. 
Um, Shell's bought up a bunch as well uh, and, and operates a very large number of charging points. So right now, they're supportive. They have divisions that are working quite closely on, on e-mobility and trying to both as a new business area, but also to preserve the existing sort of retail sites that they have. And, and in, North, in, in Europe, oil majors own more of their retail sites than they do in, 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 in the US or North America where they're more franchised. But this is this kind of classic innovator's dilemma scenario, right? How much do you really want to self-disrupt? And that is not clear yet. That's not clear if it really starts to cut into what is still the core business by a very large, large percentage, how far you keep pushing that. And I don't think we've tested that yet, but you have seen more and more of the European oil majors making increasingly aggressive long-term commitments to some version version of carbon neutrality. Now, whether that includes scope one, scope two, scope three emissions, or all these different things is everybody's got a different take on that, but they're all making noises in that direction and putting putting real money and real activity towards it as well. My guests today are Carla McCarricker, Head of Transport Analysis at Bloomberg NEF in London, and Hui He, China Regional Director for the International Council on Clean Transportation. Hui He, Chinese President Xi Jinping has pledged that the country will be carbon neutral by 2060. Pretty ambitious goal. How important is the electrification of cars and mobility to that big climate goal? Uh, basically, we need to do a bit of analysis into this. This is not very straightforward to answer, especially China didn't really translate that very high-level economy-wide goal into sectoral goals uh, as the Europe did. So um, we did some analysis most recently, and we see that electrification of the transportation sectors will be the single most powerful tool to reduce uh, transportation carbon emissions in the long term. And I said this in the long term because in the near to mid term, you will see a number of uh, actions that China will take sort of to exhaust all the emission reduction potentials of the combustion engines. So post 2035, you will see like electrification will drive down the majority of uh, carbon emission uh, emissions uh, in that period of time from 2035 to 2060. That's my short answer. <laughs> I want to end on, on technology. Uh, some analysts say that the countries that that lead and dominate in electrical technology, battery technology, will really be in a strong position in the 21st century economy. That has seemed to be China. I'd like to know how China, the U.S., and Europe are stacking up on the tech race for batteries and all the technology that's that's moving away from this 100-year-old uh, internal combustion engine. Hui he, where is China relative to Europe and the U.S. on the tech race? Um, I'd say um, China is not lagging too far behind on electric vehicle related technologies. And there are some indicators. In the past 10 years, if we say one most successful thing that China did to push for uh, vehicle electrification was that China pouring a lot of money to build almost a homegrown uh, supply chain for the electric vehicle batteries. So from the raw material side, China is well prepared. China owns in either directly or indirectly a lot of the world's reserves uh, for 
uh, rare metals that is critical for building batteries. And then moving along the supply chain, China is acquiring more and more technology, its own technology uh, for like battery cell production, battery cell packaging. You need to package all the cells in uh, into one pack and make that pack very efficient. China is moving slowly but progressively on that trend. So I'd say overall, at least on the supply chain side, China is largely independent, but still not quite advanced compared with the United States, uh, Japan, and Europe. And how much do we know about China's efforts, you know, well-documented industrial espionage efforts, people uh, masquerading as graduate students in the United States or elsewhere? Um, do we know what they're doing to, to steal this technology that they don't have to close that gap? Uh, no, no. Uh, through international collaboration, um, the other way to see why China was uh, China's EV industry was growing so fast was to look at how much international collaboration China has done in the past ten years with Europe, uh, especially with Germany. Uh, the Chinese government signed an MOU with the German government in pushing for electric vehicle technology. They are collaborating together to conquer the common technological barriers. Same thing with the United States. There's a platform that I know that builds between the Argonne National Lab, uh, the U.S. government basically, and the Tsinghua University, a leading uh, university uh, in developing auto technologies in China. They are also collaborating on uh, this technology, uh, technological cooperation or transfer. At the industry level, you will see also um, the manufacturers are trying to collaborate with or merge uh, with a lot of the international brands uh, trying to co-develop their technologies. And the Chinese government is having an increasingly opened up policy to support such trends. At least this is this was what, what happening in the past 10 years. Moving forward, uh, I'm not so sure under the current um, international dynamics, maybe the international collaboration will slow down and China will have to resort more on its uh, uh, internal resources to continue the technology development. But at least I see in the past, international collaboration is a big push uh, for electric vehicle uh, technology development. Colin McCarricker, some analysts say that the country that dominates battery and other electric car technologies will be a real leader in the 21st century. How do you see the tech race between China, Europe, and the U.S. playing out? Yeah, I, I would throw Japan and Korea into that mix as well, um, certainly because they've been leaders on battery technology to date. I, I, I think there's a difference between supply chain control and fundamental technology development. And on Going all the way up the supply chain, China's much better positioned than everyone else uh, in terms of securing access to lithium or cobalt or, or a lot of the other materials that are going into the vehicles. But what you're also seeing is that there's a lot, there's a real battle going on right now for the next generation of battery technologies. And that's where I think there's real competition and, and a wide open playing field. And we, ju we just don't know yet. But on the supply chain side, on the raw materials supplied for the current generation of batteries, China definitely has a leg up. You've been listening to Climate One. We've been talking about the role of electric vehicles in meeting global climate goals with Colin McCarricker, head of transport analysis at Bloomberg NEF in London, and Hui He, China Regional Director at the International Council on Clean Transportation. This program was generously underwritten by the Climate Works Foundation. To hear more Climate One conversations, subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your pods. 
Please help us get people talking more about climate by telling a friend or giving us a review. It really does help advance the climate conversation. Kelly Pennington directs our audience engagement. Tyler Reed is our producer. Sarah Catherine Coxon is the strategy and content manager. Steve Fox is director of advancement. Annie Chelsea edited the program. Our audio team is Mark Kirshner, Arnav Gupta, and Andrew Stelzer. Dr. Gloria Duffy is CEO of the Commonwealth Club of California, the nonprofit and nonpartisan forum where our program originates. I'm Greg Dalton.